0: the O'Reilly Security Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Allen. This week, Courtney Nash, Director of Strategic Content at O'Reilly and Chair of the O'Reilly Security Conference, speaks with Katie Mazuris, founder and CEO of Ludo Security. Katie will also be keynoting at the upcoming O'Reilly Security Conference, October 30th to November 1st in New York. In this podcast episode, they'll be talking about legal implications of bug disclosures, minimum viable requirements, and maturity models for vulnerability programs enjoy the show. Hi, Katie, thank you for joining me. I'm super excited to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we are going to talk vulnerability coordination and maturity models um, of, of such coordination. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been up to recently. And you've you've started your own company. Maybe tell folks about a bit what's behind all that.
1: Well, yeah, I I just celebrated the one year anniversary of striking out on my own and starting my company, Luta Security. And the name actually is a pretty cool story. Um, It comes from the native Chamorro name for the island where my mother was born. Um, It's an island in the northern Marianas. And um, on the map, you'll see it labeled as Rota, R-O-T-A, named after a town in Spain. But uh, the native Chamorro name for the island, is Luta, and that's why I named my company that. But uh, we specialize in basically taking organizations that have little to no idea how to receive vulnerability reports from the outside and what to do with them, and we walk them through process maturity. So, I mean, I know that I'm known for bug bounties, um, and those are great incentives for an organization that, that, you know, really understands what kinds of bugs it wants to solicit from the hacker world and pay for. But for organizations who have never received a vulnerability report or have received very few in the lifetime of that organization, they need a little bit more help. And so that's what my company does.
0: So I wanna we'll
1: get to bug bounty still though. I
0: wanna talk a bunch about that. But let's back up a bit then. And so for an organization that doesn't hasn't experienced this before, what might that experience look like like? What would getting a vulnerability report look like? And and then we can kind of start to talk through you know, the kinds of recommendations and options that are out there for, for folks who aren't at the level of coordinated bug bounties and
1: whatnot? Yeah, well, there's there's basically two kinds of reactions that we see from organizations that have never received a bug report before. Some of them are really grateful, and that's ideally where you want people to start. But a lot of them go through what I call the five stages of vulnerability response grief, where at first, they are in denial. They're like, no, that's not that's not a bug. Maybe you just, you maybe you are mistaken. Um, or they get angry and they send the lawyers. Or they try to bargain with the bug hunter and say, well, you know, maybe if we just. We just did something really stupid and tried to, you know, mask what this is, and maybe, maybe you won't talk about it publicly at a public conference or tweet about it, you know, or something like that. And then, you know, then they often get really depressed because they realize that this is just one bug report from one bug finder, and that maybe there are a ton of bugs that they don't know what to do with until they finally get to the acceptance stage. And um, ideally, we we like it when organizations have actually gotten to that acceptance stage that you know there there are bugs in everything, and eventually some Somebody is going to report a security vulnerability to your organization, even if you don't write software as as your business model. Even if you're just you've just got a website on the Internet, um, it's possible that somebody will find and report a security issue to you.
0: So why shouldn't these people just lawyer up and go after these nasty, you know, Hackers and bug reporter people i'm you can, I know I'm being horribly sarcastic, but that you mentioned that is a very normal and early stage reaction,
1: well, yeah, I mean you know lawyers gonna law right <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of a you know it's a natural reaction for organizations that haven't gotten wise to the fact that um, you know their lawyers typically don't keep their users safe from internet crime or harm. Usually, it's the engineers who fix the bugs, who actually uh, who actually make a difference there. So reacting with a lawyer usually doesn't doesn't keep their users safe and doesn't get the bug fixed. It might do something to temporarily protect their brand, but that's. Only as long as, you know, essentially the bug in question remains silent or remains, uh, uh, you know, unknown to the media. It looks a whole lot worse to your users that instead of taking the steps to investigate and fix a security issue, that instead you tried to kill the messenger with a bunch of lawsuits. So that, uh, you know, ideally organizations get wise to that fact really quickly. So...
0: And, that, I, I, and I think that makes sense. It's probably a hard lesson for some people to learn. Um, they probably learn the hard way, you know, once or twice, maybe. Um, but in the bargaining sense, wh- what advice do you give people who then might – so they might be in, like, acceptance or bargaining, who have not even to acceptance yet – But how do they, I mean, there's a trust issue, right? Like, I would feel like, especially if you don't have some kind of program for this, so some random person comes to you with this bug, are there concerns that organizations have, like, can I trust these people? Like, you know, am I going to get blackmailed even out? Like, I, I don't really know enough about what that, you know, sort of intermediate stage of things look like.
1: Well, yeah, they definitely go through all these feelings and (laughs) these feelings, um, things of of worrying about the trustworthiness of the person reporting. However, if you kind of break it down into its logical components, the law tends to be on the side of the of the organization we've got in the United States, we've got the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We've got the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And those are all laws that have typically been used to harass or silence security researchers who are just trying to report something, you know, along the lines of if you see something, say something. They are actually doing a risky thing, you know, for themselves, because there are these laws on the books that can be easily, you know, misused and abused to try and kill the messenger. Um, There are laws in other countries as well that similarly, you know, would, would act as discouragement from well-meaning researchers to come forward. And so what I typically tell organizations that are thinking about this and that are having these feelings is that, look, we do not live in an Austin Powers movie. Dr. Evil is not telling you step by step all the ways in which he is going to... Right. He's going to end you, right? <laughs> he's not. He's not telling you, and he's got not got his pinky to his mouth, and that is not the hacker that you're talking to on the other end. You are talking to a helpful hacker who has literally stuck their neck out and risked their own, um, you know, their their own freedom potentially to try and warn you about a security issue. And once they kind of get that, they're like, "Oh, that's right. I do have all all the legal tools at my disposal." And this person is actually taking a risk by telling me. They begin to trust that person a whole lot more.
0: So let's let's talk then, I, I saw you talk about this at one point, and, and, and the concept you have around a maturity model, I think, on this is what was sort of most impressive to me, was I would feel like if I was one of these people, even if I'm an acceptance, I have that bit in the back of my brain that's like, okay, this is the first bug I've heard about. Now, oh my God, how many other bugs are there? And how do I do this? And where do I start? And it feels like a really big, probably potentially daunting task, or like, maybe I'll fix this one bug, but now, now what? So Talk to me a bit about this notion of the maturity model that you, you've you all developed for that.
1: Well, yeah, and it's, it's something that I had developed, um, you know, over the years of starting vulnerability disclosure programs, running them myself, you know, running big coordination, uh, coordination events among multiple vendors um, back when I was a strategist at Microsoft. And I noticed that there were five different areas that came into play when it comes to resolving vulnerabilities um, that are reported from the outside. And it's not just as simple as, okay, you know what, we've come to the acceptance phase. We're gonna go ahead and set up a web page for reporting or we're gonna set up an email address and just let it fly. It really is about looking at your whole picture. So Uh, I take it in five capability areas. So organizationally, number one, you have to decide that your organization is going to be committed to responding to vulnerability reports from the outside. This is different from an organization being willing to undergo security testing at all. Because security testing typically is, you know, it's at a time and place of your choosing. It's under non-disclosure agreement with whomever you've hired to do the testing, um, or it may be your in-house staff who are, are obviously already bound to secrecy. And it doesn't have the same kind of levers and pressures that might be when you have an outside entity reporting to you. So that's you know that's sort of the organizational um, you know aspect to it means that you're really willing to respond on a more ad hoc basis as these reports come in, and then you've of course got you know your engineering capabilities. That's fairly straightforward. That everybody knows they need engineering capabilities to respond to and investigate security vulnerability reports and fix them. Um, but a lot of people overlook the communications element, and communications is another of the capability areas. And it's not just about communicating between the uh, finder of the bug and your organization—it's a whole lot of other communication that you might not have built up, like communicating internally what's going on if there's you know a significant issue and it's causing disruptions to your organization. If there's a public exploitation incident that's going on that you're responding to, what are the communication channels that you, you've established? And then also, how do you communicate with your supply chain partners or your other customers? How do you communicate with? the general public versus the media. So all of these different kind of communication ideas um, that go beyond just the communication between the bug hunter and your engineering team need to be taken into account. Um, in addition, there's also, you know, the analytics. So how how well is your process running right now? What kinds of things where are you seeing gaps in your process? Um, what kinds of areas can you improve? And how do you even measure Whether or not you're getting better at this, or you're just playing what I call bug Mm whack-a-mole, you know, if you're not learning from the bugs that are being reported in order to not make similar or the same mistakes in other deployments or other code that you might be writing or deploying, then you're not really getting that much out of your process in the first place. And then the final area is in incentives, and that doesn't just mean paying cash for vulnerabilities. Um, As I was saying, you know, security researchers take a great risk by um, reporting security issues to an organization, if there's no published process, they literally have no incentives to stick their neck out and tell you about something before, ideally before it's exploited by a criminal. Gotcha. Um, sorry, I was actually
0: taking copious notes while you were talking, which I don't always do on podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this makes sense to me, like, is do you feel like you uh, people have to kind of go through all of these capabilities, but then within that, it's sort of, what what I mean? What would you say is the minimum viable starter kit? You know, for somebody looking to do this, is there, is there something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is something that minimum viable starter kit for starting a vulnerability disclosure program means that one, you've got executive level commitment to do this. That's the organizational area in the basic, um, you know, in the basic level of maturity you have a clear way to receive vulnerability reports. You know, so a market study that we had done with my previous company back in 2015, the numbers haven't changed that much and took a look at the Forbes Global 2000. So these are companies that are paying top dollar for security, for proactive security, for testing, for benchmarking. Um, they buy a whole lot of products with blinky lights and spend millions on security. 94% of the Forbes Global 2000 had no published way to report a security vulnerability to them. And if you think about it, it's basically, you know, that's very indicative of the fact that they probably have no idea what they would do if somebody did. You know, they might call the lawyers, they might just, you know, hope the person goes away. So at the very basic level, um, having a clear way to report issues, and then having, you know, having some clearly defined scope of the kinds of issues you're most interested in hearing about. And also things that you prefer hackers not do. I mean, I've seen a lot vulnerability disclosure policies published on people's websites that basically say, please don't attempt to do a denial of service against, you know, against our website or against our our service or our products, because, you know, we know that with sufficient resources, somebody would be able to do that. So please don't test that out for us. (laughs) You know?
0: Yeah, that's that makes perfect sense. I want to come back to something you said um, in the middle of that about, um, you know, the number of businesses, basically, not at all clearly prepared for this, because what I've noted, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but my observations of your work is that you've had the most success and, and done, you know, sort of had released the most, you know, sort of coordinated vulnerability programs with government agencies versus private enterprise is, would you agree that's a true statement?
1: Well, that's only been two out of, you know, out of, out of the many that I've, that I've worked on in the past few years. But I mean, really, you know, it started when I was still a security consultant with Symantec. And Symantec, um, at the time, this was uh, back when they acquired the company called AtStake, where I used to be a penetration tester. They acquired AtStake in 2004. They were at the time the biggest security company in the world. They had no means for um, essentially publishing security information um, or, you know, security advisories by that were discovered by the researchers who they had just acquired by via acquiring at stake. So I had to write Symantec's very first vulnerability coordination and vulnerability disclosure policy myself. Um, and that was, you know, what, about 13, 14 years ago now. So, um, you know, so actually, it, even in private industry, the maturing process in some of the biggest companies in the world really took place over the period of, you know, the early 2000s into, you know, kind of the 2010s. In 2010, I wrote Microsoft's first ever coordinated vulnerability disclosure policy. And that was because they didn't have one of their own. They had an acknowledgement policy of basically saying, if you, you know, if you report something to Microsoft and keep, you know, keep it a secret until the patch is out, then we'll thank you in the bulletin. But they didn't actually have a proper coordinated vulnerability disclosure policy until I wrote one for them. So um, overall, you know, organizational maturity, even in some of the largest companies in the world, has taken quite a long time to catch on. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about the fact that there is now an ISO standard for vulnerability disclosure and vulnerability handling processes that most people do not know anything about. And they were published in 2014.
0: Right. And those are those are free and available to to everybody. Right.
1: So one of them, one of them is um, the ISO standard 29147 is on vulnerability disclosure. And that one, as of last year, is available at no charge. ISO typically charges money to download their standards unless you're in academia or whatnot. But they they agreed to make that particular standard available at no cost last year because it was so important for people to understand that process. And then, you know, hopefully some of the other related standards, you know, they would be able to continue their business model with that.
0: So do you think, I mean, you mentioned brand you know, people, these things impacting people's brands sort of way back early on when we were talking. And I don't think you're at like sea change level with this stuff yet, (laughs) obviously. But do you see this eventually as being something that that people, you know, sort of like a consumer brand indicator kind of thing, like if people have these kinds of vulnerability coordination programs, that that could become sort of a badge, if you will, of sort of pride or safety that they, in terms of how they present themselves to customers and industry
1: and whatnot. Well, I mean, a lot of organizations that have started this process, unfortunately, they have an email address, and they may even have a brief policy statement about it, but they're still not really executing it in in the best way. And, you know, I, I could call your attention to the recent medical device um, mm-hmm. scandal with uh, with vulnerability disclosure, and a lot of people were focusing on the researcher side, which is typically what happens. There's a right. lot of scrutiny on the researchers and not a whole lot of scrutiny on the vendor side. So, same. St. Jude's Medical has a an email address set up. They state that they have a process. And yet when, you know, when accusations from the researchers surfaced that there were some serious vulnerabilities, the very first thing that St. Jude Medical did was actually pursue a defamation lawsuit. And that was really interesting as a reaction. So, you know, having a stated process is one thing and having an email address, but actually walking the walk. In the best interest of users and customers is a different matter entirely, and that's that kind of real close inspection under the hood is what I typically help organizations and governments deal with. Of what is the right move when something like that happens? How will we respond? What is our playbook? And what is in the best interest of our users?
0: And I thought it was really interesting how transparent those those programs were on the government side. I mean, I still I'm kind of coming back to that, but I I was just really surprised by that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about. The couple of those that you've, you've managed to make happen in the last year or two, I guess last year, right? It was just it was recently that two of them.
1: Right, right. So, um, you know, so Hack the Pentagon was the first bug bounty program of the U.S. Department of Defense, and that launched about a year ago. Um, that was a result of actually some of my conversations starting with the Pentagon way back when I was still working at Microsoft. Because they were super interested in the rather unusual bounty structure that I had created at Microsoft that was different from the rest of the bug bounties that were going on at the time, where it was very straightforward, one bug, one bounty payment. I was bountying techniques, which is much more complex and much more rare, at $100,000 a pop at Microsoft, and I was bountying um, individual bugs. In the early part of the beta period, so it was a sort of a, a controlled time, um, you know, time experiment where we were looking to get those bug reports as early as possible during the beta period, and setting a bounty during the first thirty days of the IE11 beta actually shifted the traffic that we were seeing already which was, you know, that that before all the hackers were who were willing to report to Microsoft for free had been holding their vulnerability reports, not reporting them during the beta period and waiting until after, you know, the code was was pretty much frozen. And the final version was released because they wanted their name in a bulletin. And if it was fixed during a beta, then they wouldn't get that, you know, that incentive. Yeah, back to those incentives. Yep. Right. So, you know, the, the hack the Pentagon came because they were really interested in hearing about manipulating these market incentives, because each of those types of bugs would have cost, you know, on the offense market would have fetched six figures. And, you know, Microsoft wasn't paying six figures per bug for beta bugs. In fact, nobody was. And so understanding those market behaviors actually really helped help the Pentagon feel comfortable in trying out a bug bounty pilot, which is what happened last year. And the results were so, so great for them. Um, They got, I think, 138 vulnerabilities reported in a 21-day period. They fixed them all within six weeks, I believe, of the entire program and you know they paid $75,000 in in bug bounties to find that many vulnerabilities through their usual vendors it was costing them you know over a million dollars a year in federal contracts with with different you know security vendors and they were typically receiving maybe two or three bug reports a month so you know it was a way for them to really wrap their heads around using these incentives, making a big splash and really understanding, you know, who is willing to work with the U.S. government to make it more secure. So it was a success on all these different fronts. And then that's why it was expanded. Um, We did hack the army, which was a similar model last November. But more importantly, the Department of Defense also in November announced its ongoing vulnerability coordination program, which means that even when there's not a bug bounty going on, it's finally legal to, you know, if you see something, say something to the U.S. government in terms of Department of Defense websites. And that was not legal before these programs. I think that's much more significant than, you know, how much money was spent um, on these things. It was finally a legal channel for security researchers who wanted to help to be able to do so without risking their freedom.
0: And you got into bug bounties there a bit because there's you know the bug bounty sort of preceded the the official vulnerability coordination program so let's let's segue then into talking more about bug bounties because that is as you've said sort of where you got started with all of this and, and you mentioned early on that that's definitely a level of of dealing with um, vulnerabilities that not every organization is necessarily capable of handling. So let, maybe talk a bit about what that looks like, the kinds of organizations that are sort of set up for that, and maybe talk some some pros and cons from your experience of bug bounties.
1: Well, I mean, you know, anyone can offer cash for bugs. That is, that is something everyone could pot- potentially do. Whether or not it turns out well for them depends <laughs> on a whole lot of things, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I've definitely seen bug bounties offered by organizations and they know that they have so much low hanging fruit bugs that they just scope the bug bounty to this area that's, you know, nearly insignificant. And then they have all of these bugs that are out of scope. And that provides a lot of frustration for the security community because they're saying, well, look, OK, I think I just saw a tweet today um, saying somebody, you know, is offering a bug bounty, but all of their website is out of scope except for one WordPress module that's up to date. And that's not really, you know, that's, that's kind of missing the point, right? I think bug bounties can be useful as a focus incentive, right? And, you know, if an organization has a pretty good handle on their vulnerabilities and has a process for dealing with, you know, their vulnerabilities that they already know about, then that might be a good way to focus people. But I, I you know, I typically don't think that it's a good way to start. It is uh, it has also been trendy recently in the last year or so as as bug bounties have caught on, where people are saying, well, you know, we're not getting as good vulnerability reports. Quick, let's just double or pay ten times the bug bounty amounts for a mm-hmm. period of time and attract a whole bunch of researchers. And you know, I think the slide that I use to to depict what this looks like is like a couple of people wearing a suit made of bees and, (laughs) you know, that Oprah meme where she's got her arms out and there's just bees bees everywhere. Bees, right? I mean, you know, and, and the title of that slide is Do You Want Ants? Because this is how you get ants. And what I'm actually saying in mixing all the memes is what I'm saying is you might do that, and yes, you may get a whole swarm of bug reports. But are they really the most valuable bugs—the ones that are actually going to help you secure your your users, your customers, or your your enterprise, your website? Um, or are they just going to be a whole swarm of the same bug reported by multiple sources because it was, you know, a little bit of a low-hanging fruit exercise? So, I mean, I, I caution people to think through their incentive models. What is it that you really want? Do you want more bug reports? Do you want? What types of bug reports do you want? And how can you structure this so that you're not basically wasting all your resources or wasting, you know, an outsourced, um, you know, bug bounty service provider? or triage provider resources, where you're spending money to have them sift through that for you, what kind of resources are you wasting if you could have found these bugs more effectively on your own with a decent, you know, security testing program, um, and maybe a full-time person in-house? So I talk a lot of people off the bug bounty ledge if they haven't done a whole lot of their own homework and their own testing.
0: That makes sense too. Um, So we're getting closer towards the end. And I want to ask my favorite ending question, but I'm going to ask you before that if there's anything I haven't asked you that you want me to ask you or to talk about.
1: Sure. Um, well, um, one of the things that that I was excited to, to help with last week. Is it last week? It all blurs together. But um, last week, uh, I was at the Cyber UK conference. That is the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK government's um, industry conference. They mix government folks and industry folks. And we had a quiet little announcement, which was the intention of the NCSC to launch a vulnerability coordination pilot. And they're working with my company for advice because essentially, it's my job to help them run with scissors, but just not pointed at their necks while they're doing it. So who do they point uh, them at? Though? <laughs> pointed down in a very safe fashion, <laughs> you know, just, you know, so the, the, the deal is they've done vulnerability coordination before they had a UK cert that merged under NCSC. Um, and they've actually blogged about it and they said, you know, we've done that these before, but we haven't had a really, you know, standardized process for doing so. So we are going to learn by doing. And we are going to launch these pilots. We're going to invite some security researchers who we know and we've worked with to come and participate in these things in the coming months. And then they're going to report out on what they learned. And I think that as an approach is really, really good because it not only, you know, it's not only focused on the process. I mean, sure, bugs will be uncovered through this. And that's obviously, you know, one of the goals is to strengthen the security of the targeted websites. But really, it's about looking at the process, looking at the ways that they can improve that process, and then sharing that knowledge with their constituents and with the world. And that is something that I'm super excited to help the UK government do in the next few months.
0: Yeah, it feels like the missing piece. In in all of this, because that whole nature of sort of, I mean, the very notion of publicly announcing how you're going to deal with bugs and all that, as you've said and seen, and we've talked about is still not a common practice. It's not well executed generally across, you know, any kind of an organization. And if people don't talk about how those practices work for them, you know, in in more specific ways, versus like, we did this, and, you know, or we got this many bugs, maybe, or whatever, but like to actually sort of disclose the nature of what that work was like, what they learned, I, it, I mean, that to me, is super important for other people to start making the decisions also about, you know, how they're going to do this, because um, like, oh, we'll get more bugs is, is not the best, you know, sort of information for deciding if and how you want to go about doing this kind of thing yourself.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, organizations are always going to have competing needs when it comes to spending their security dollars. And I think that from a holistic view, You know, bug bounties are not going to be the 100% answer for getting people more secure. You know, you can't bounty your way to secure the same way that you couldn't penetration test your way to secure. I mean, those things happen all after the fact, after deployment, after the code is written. You know, and I think that having a process to deal with the inevitable. And the inevitable is that bugs will be found. They will continue to be found. What does your process look like and how healthy is that process? Um, I think that's really the that's the real question. And that's that's honestly why, um, you know, this maturity model makes perfect sense for people to get started. They benchmark themselves against it and then they have a roadmap to, you know, to get better in the areas that match where they're comfortable making their investments right now.
0: Yeah, I really hope we see more organizations be as transparent um, as it sounds like you know, the UK government is willing to be. I think that would be um, incredibly valuable for everyone.
1: Well, these guys are so great. They um, even the CEO of the NCSC and the technical director, I heard them all swear on stage at their own conference. I think I think these guys are very, very open with how they really feel, which is awesome. I heard Kieran Martin say, you know, when he was asked, what, what's the best thing that, that businesses, small businesses and consumers can do to protect themselves from online threats? He said, patch your damn boxes. Oh, God. And it was Amen. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Refreshing. Um, yes, they are refreshing. I still won't drink their tea, though, because I'm from Boston and we throw that in the ocean.
0: <laughs> I should just end it on that note. Um, <laughs> but I'm not gonna. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so the question I ask everyone who um, is brave enough to join me, it's based on when we first started this, the conference, my co chair, Allison Miller, who you know, quite well, we started discovering that, you know, there's all these defensive security people out there who are sort of lurking in the shadows, and they don't get a lot of stage time, if you will, and, and sort of as much publicity as a lot of sort of the hacking and breaking and things. But they're the the ones sort of Holding it all up and protecting us and keeping us safe, and so I don't, I don't want to overuse the like superhero me- you know metaphor, but I do feel like everybody has their own secret superpower. They may or may not be aware of it. Uh, so I've been getting everyone to reveal their secret superpower, and I would like to know what yours is.
1: Well, if it's a secret, I mean, shouldn't I keep it a secret? <laughs> like- Like, it's no secret that, you know, I can get lots of people to karaoke in pretty much any city, including Abu Dhabi. I have karaoke in Abu Dhabi, but that's not a secret.
0: Um, (laughs) So you have the power of crowd mind control, which is pretty sweet. Um, (laughs) No,
1: I think I think probably um, probably my greatest my greatest strength in in my very long career, professional career in information security, which at this point is spanning Oh, gosh, it's like 17, 18 years now that I've been a professional in this space. I think it's patience. It's the ability for me to empathize with you know who I'm, whomever I'm trying to convince of, of something. It, if it weren't for that ability to picture, well, what is it that the IE engineers really want? Oh, they want the bugs earlier in the beta period. Okay, well then I can make a program that will work for them. What is you know what does the Pentagon want? They want to identify people who are willing to help them um, and you know and and kill some of these bugs. And what does the UK government want? They want to understand this process so that they can roll it out to the rest of the UK gov and actually make, you know, not just the government, but also, you know, their business owners and consumers in the United Kingdom safer online. So I think it's just a matter of, of that empathy, you know, that, that I can figure out pretty quickly what it is that aligns with what it is I'm trying, that, that I have experience and I can help them with.
0: Yeah. Everybody's got their something, right? Yeah. To meet them where that wherever that is. Uh, it's it's going to be much more successful.
1: Yep. And the price they pay is usually karaoke. That's that's my price.
0: No. I will <laughs> sign on the dotted line. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Katie. And thank you for having me. This yeah, has been great. Fantastic. Thank you for listening. You can reach Katie on Twitter at K8EM0. If you like the show, remember to subscribe to the O'Reilly Security Podcast
1: on iTunes, Ditcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.